Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. A USA Today article printed some years ago, reprinted an actual article from a small newspaper called the Mount Airy News. It's an elderly actress uh, from the Andy Griffith Show who got mugged in broad daylight in this small town that Mayberry was modeled after. Her name is Betty Lou Lynn. She was 83. She played the character Thelma Lou, who was the girlfriend of Deputy Barney Fife in the long-running series. Lynn, who was born in Kansas and lived for decades in Los Angeles, moved in 2007 from Los Angeles to Mount Airy, the birthplace of the Andy Griffith Show and the inspirational for, again, the fictional Mayberry. A police report says that a man grabbed Lynn's wallet containing $130 from her hands at a shopping center that Sunday afternoon. An alleged culprit was caught not long after under a bridge, and the report says that at least $43 was recovered to give back to her. In 2008, <clears throat> Lynn told the news that she decided to move to Mount Airy after being robbed three times in L.A. and didn't expect to be robbed in modern-day Mayberry. The last straw, she said, when she was in Los Angeles that prompted her to move came after a second break-in of her home while she was visiting Mount Airy for the annual Mayberry Days celebration. That year's festivities, which happened in late September, marked the 50th anniversary of the show. Why do I tell you that? No matter where we go in the world, we cannot escape the reality of the world in which we live, that it is broken and fallen. No matter, and there are a lot of people moving. <laughs> there are a lot of people making mass exoduses out of cities and towns and places that are becoming more and more corrupt and abusive and where the law is not keeping the order. And so you could see this in California, New York, several of our inner cities across the United States. This is happening by droves. Hundreds of thousands of people across the United States are leaving the crime-ridden cities and going to other places. But guess what? It's not perfect in other places either. Okay? Dayton, Ohio, where we lived for about eight years prior to moving here, it was considered, right before we moved there, one of the most dangerous cities in the United States at the time. It got a little bit better while we were there, but I think it's made a turn for the worse since COVID, and it's still a pretty rough place to live in the inner city. We lived on the outskirts of the city. We were still in Dayton, as far as the zip code was concerned, but we were in a little suburb there on the outskirts of the city, which was relatively safe. The reality is, when we moved to Butler, which is a family-oriented city, we realize there's crime here. Did you know that? There are people with problems that actually require legal assistance, to put it mildly. 
<laughs> right? Nowhere, nowhere can you go in this world where there is not some sense of the fallenness and brokenness of the world around us. And here's the thing. We weren't created for this fallen and broken world. We weren't created for the kingdoms of this world. Rather, we were created for the kingdom of heaven. And only those who come to faith in Jesus Christ become citizens of that kingdom. And that's what I want to talk about today. I told you last week we were going to put on pause what the dream was of Nebuchadnezzar. I kind of gave you a bit of a teaser and talked about dreams last week. There, if you remember Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who had overtaken Judah and sacked Jerusalem, had the temple torn down, and had most of the Jewish people exiled throughout the kingdom of Babylon. He, several years after doing this, and having brought in some Jewish aristocrats and royalty to become his servants in his palace and have them educated in the ways of Babylonian education and, and customs, he had a dream one night. And the dream disturbed him so much that he needed somebody to help him understand it. And he brought in all of his magicians, enchanters, necromancers, psychics, we would call them today, people who could look into these deep, dark places and find out maybe what the context and meaning of the dream was. Well, nobody could do that. And so Nebuchadnezzar flies into a bit of a rage and puts forth an edict that all of the wise men of the kingdom be put to death no matter where they are. And the Babylonian Empire was pretty large at that time, not as large as some that would come after him, but large enough that that edict would take some time to get around to that territory, to the different territories. Well, Daniel gets word of this because he is considered one of the wise men of Nebuchadnezzar's court, and he says, whoa, 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 hold up. Let me consult with Yahweh and find out what the meaning of your dream is. Give me a little bit of time. And so the, the, the execution was put on hold, and God did reveal to Daniel not only the meaning of the dream, but the content of the dream as well. So Daniel gets a hearing again with Nebuchadnezzar. He's standing before Nebuchadnezzar, and this is where we pick up his story today. While your majesty was sleeping, Daniel chapter 2, starting with verse 29, you dreamed about coming events. He who revealed secrets has shown you what is going to happen. Who's he referring to? He went and consulted with Yahweh, not Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians, not Baal, not any other so-called god of any other nation. He consulted with God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, he who reveals secrets, this God of mine, has shown you what's going to happen. And listen to what he says. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what's in your heart. He's saying, I'm just a messenger. I didn't conjure this up. It's not because I am better than anybody else. I'm not wiser than anybody else, but the God of all wisdom, Yahweh himself, gave me the understanding to impart to you, and it's for your purposes, not for mine. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you this huge shining statue of a man, and it was frightening in sight. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold, 
The chest and the arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. And as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of the iron and clay and smashed them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Do you catch? So this, the, in, the, in this dream, there's a statue made of multiple different types of fine materials. But if you notice, they go from the most, what you would say, most important or expensive of materials at the top to lesser important materials down to the bottom. But did you also notice it goes from a softer material, gold is very soft and malleable, to harder material. Are you catching this? And then finally, it gets down to the very bottom, the pedestal, the feet. What are they made from? They're made from one of the hardest substances, at least in that day, known to man, which was iron. But iron didn't didn't, um, wasn't refined the way our steel is today, which can hold up mighty skyscrapers to the tune of over 1,500 feet in some cases. It's crazy, isn't it? But this was an iron that would have been a strong substance, but the feet were made of iron intermixed with clay. So what you do in the smelting process with any of these metals is you, you purify it. What do you do with the purified metal? You, you let it burn, get liquefied, and then you take this like small little rake and scrape off the top. It's called the slag. So it seems like by the time you get down to the feet of this statue, it's, it's kind of got bubbles of clay mixed in with it. Where does the rock that is cut from this mountain, not cut by human hands, where does it hit? Does it hit the head? The stomach, it hits the most vulnerable. And the irony of all of this is the most vulnerable is the place where it should be the strongest. When you build the foundation of a home, do you make it out of stuff that is soft? No, you have building codes now that if you're going to build this type of building on this type of ground in this area, you have to dig down so far below the, the, the frost or the freeze level so that you have something that won't freeze, so you have a stable enough foundation on which to build. And depending on the material or the type of ground you're building on may change the type of foundation you have to build. This is not a great statue when you consider how it's constructed. I mean, it's probably probably pretty cool to look at. As a matter of fact, it says it's a frightening sight to see in the dream. But the rock cut from the mountain Crushed into small pieces, the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold. Then the wind blew away without a trace, all of them like chaff on a threshing floor. There was not even residue of any of these metals left, but the rock was left. The rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream, Daniel says. Now let me tell the king what it means. 
Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. It's almost as if he's saying, you're the king of kings. But keep in mind, if he's saying this, he's saying it with a lowercase k. You are the lowercase king of lowercase kings. Does you get it? We call Jesus the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we mean that he is literally above all else, not just earthly kings, but any spiritual power in this world or this universe. He is the Lord of all of that. So it's different. Daniel says, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and he's given you honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. I'm Nebuchadnezzar. I'm feeling pretty good. This isn't bad. This dream isn't bad for me. Whoo, good, right? But then he goes on. But after your kingdom, after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise and take your place. So can you imagine, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? You want your legacy to far outlive you, don't you? But what if you were told that eventually what you have built and amassed and have grown will eventually wither and fade? It won't be anymore. As a matter of fact, all that was left of what you had built up and God had given you as honor will be completely wiped away and all that will be left is ruins for archaeologists to dig up and find find out about later. That was what he was hearing in this. Majesty, after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise and take its place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise and rule the world. And following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and the toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron, but but while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. See, the mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage, but they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. Like oil and water do not mix. These iron and clay representatives will not mix. And it'll weaken the strongest empire up to that point in time. We'll talk about that in just a moment. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. See, that's the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands. He's wanting very clearly Nebuchadnezzar to understand the message from God is that there is no human person that will ever establish a kingdom that will last forever, but there is a God in heaven 
who will. That is the meaning of the rock cut. The great God has shown the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true and its meaning is certain. Now, it could stop there, but it goes further. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and he worshipped him. And he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burnt and sweet incense before him. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king who worships multiple gods. And so it, doesn't, it shouldn't shock you that he would bow and worship the guy who could give him the meaning to his dream. Okay? Lest we think Nebuchadnezzar's a little bit weird in worshiping people, we do the same thing too. If we put that person in a place of honor above God in our own lives. So got to be careful, because we can tend to do that. The king said to Daniel, truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. And then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all of his wise men. Do you catch what's happening here? <clears throat> What do we see happen oftentimes in the Old Testament um, with God who punishes his people? What happens to those who seem to be scraping the bottom of the barrel, who seem to be defeated? Doesn't it seem interesting to you that God chooses them and puts them in the highest places of authority? Think of Joseph. His brother's selling him into slavery, and, and, and he rises to the top of authority of any place he's put, whether it's in jail, whether it's in Potiphar's house, or whether it's in the whole land of Egypt. Joseph becomes second in command over the whole empire of Egypt, just as Daniel now, under Nebuchadnezzar, comes into second in command under Nebuchadnezzar as the whole authority of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed, here you go, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. Here's the point this morning. Kingdoms rise and fall, but Yahweh's kingdom lasts forever. Why am I using Yahweh instead of God for the word and the title this month? It's because we are in a time period where the kingdom of Israel and Judah are completely wiped out. It's the God in Jeremiah and Ezekiel who said, I will be your sanctuary in the wilderness when your sanctuary is destroyed, meaning the temple. It's that God who we talk about in Daniel. Because gods often in those days were associated with places and idols and those types of things. But the God of heaven and earth cannot be confined to a building or an idol. The God of heaven and earth, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one that Moses asked his name at the burning bush in Exodus 3, said, I am that I am, Yahweh. That is the God who is distinctive of all other lords, kings, rulers of this world, whether seen or unseen, the God of heaven and earth. So we call him by his formal name, Yahweh. 
I am that I am. So what do we learn about the different kingdoms? So let's take a brief look. The first kingdom is the kingdom of gold. It's pretty simple. Why? Because we are told that this kingdom is represented by who? Nebuchadnezzar. You, my king, are the head of gold. You are the greatest of kings. What we will continue to read, if you read on through Daniel, is actually really fun because he takes that greatest of kings title and even though he is warned to not walk around with a chip on his shoulder looking at all that he has amassed and, and made and, and start to get prideful about it, he's standing on his palace rooftop or on his balcony one day looking out over Babylon and he starts to get puffed up. And he says, look at all I have accomplished. We've got to be careful when we do that. Because pride is a sneaky, sneaky snake. Sorry. It's just a, pride is a very sneaky thing that will get in and destroy you. And so he's up there strutting his stuff. He's looking. He's, it's pieces ruling. He's... he's He's got everything you could ever want. And he's so proud at all he's been able to accomplish. And what does God tell him? I told you not to get prideful. What, what you have has been given to you by me. So you're going to actually eat grass like a cow for about seven years and crawl around with the wild beasts in the wilderness. <laughs> you see Nebuchadnezzar doing this. It happens. He goes mad and crazy. He is dethroned in some sense, and for seven years, he's clawing at the ground. There's pictures of, of this where people have painted what they think he looked like with all the long hair and just insane eating grass next to cows in the field. And after seven years, he comes to his senses. He is reestablished. He is put back on the throne as the emperor of Babylon. And he is humbled. And I believe he's a guy we will see in heaven because of what we are told there. It says he worshiped Yahweh, the God of heaven, from that point forward. But it says after Babylon is represented by gold. There are archaeologists and groups of people that have gone and done digs, and, and you can actually go to modern-day Babylon in Iraq where, where, where King Nebuchadnezzar and a few other kings prior, uh, following him um, continued to rule for a short period of time. And it is, it's, it's this be beautiful bluish, deep blue color and gold. When they first... Um, let, let me find the, the one quote here. Renald Showers explains that God chose gold to represent Babylon for two reasons. First, Marduk, the chief god of Babylon, was called the god of gold. That's one reason. The second is that Babylon used gold extensively in its buildings, images, and shrines. Herodotus, the, the father of history, 
Herodotus is known as really the first historian, the Greek historian who came later in time, went and visited Babylon 90 years after the era of Nebuchadnezzar. He was astonished at the amount of gold there. Even the walls and the buildings were overlaid with gold. The marvels and the wonders of ancient Babylon, specifically during the time of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, are particularly significant. There are hanging gardens. There's gold used like common material. There are great statues buildings, ziggurats, like, like, uh, like the pyramids of our day. There are only some of the magnificent sites that one would have seen had they gone there. Now, represented as gold, eventually it would be overthrown. The next one's more difficult because we're told that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. Babylon is the kingdom of gold. But what's the lesser kingdom to come after them? Well, we know that another kingdom came under Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian, but they lived next door to this group called the Medes. And the Medes and the Persians were related through common ancestry, but they were separate kingdoms. But they had challenged one another along the way. Cyrus actually, during his time period, decided he wanted to overtake the Medes. And the ruler of the Medes at the time was his uncle. <laughs> and so it wasn't a huge taking. It wasn't a lot of bloodshed, but it was just kind of a, we're going to acquire you and you're going to become a part of us. This is why instead of the Medes or the Persians, we know them as the Medo-Persians because they were so interconnected. And so the Medo-Persian Empire once Cyrus takes over and amasses the Medes as his, his uh, cohorts, if you will, they began to build stronger military presence, and they're represented by silver in the statue. They are a lesser kingdom, but as a lesser kingdom, uh, doesn't make them less strong. Silver is a little bit more strong material than gold is. It's still pliable and moldable, but it's stronger. And Siren comes in with an iron fist, and he begins to take over the territories of an already weakened Babylon, and he takes over Babylon. And not only takes over Babylon, but he expands the kingdom. If you look at ancient maps, Babylon was a huge kingdom. But Medo-Persia, when Cyrus comes in and takes over, it expand, he expands it even greater than that. In an article titled, Who Were the Nations in Nebuchadnezzar's Prophetic Dream, Dr. Mitchell Chase writes that the Medo-Persians, under the rule of Cyrus, conquered Babylon in 539 B.C. and remained in power until 331 B.C. A progression from Babylon to Persia in Nebuchadnezzar's vision is reasonable because, is reasonable because Babylon fell to the Medes, not to the Medes, but to the Persians, 11 years after the Persians had, had absorbed the Median Empire. Nevertheless, the Medes continued to play an important role in the Persian Empire, and the Greeks frequently referred to the Persians as Medes until the 4th century B.C. Why am I telling you? You're like, I didn't come to learn a history lesson today. Because some of you are like... <laughs> Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, Right? The reason I want you to see this, the reason what was important for God to give, I'm sorry, did, I really kind of choked back some spit there, but I've seen some of you, I'm telling you. 
I know you're praying, but it looks a lot like sleeping. All right, let's get back on track. The reason that God had given uh, Nebuchadnezzar this dream is to tell him something extremely important. And you could say, Nebuchadnezzar could say, "Uh, I don't really care about all that junk. I don't care about what's going to happen. Why do I care about what's going to happen to the future? I'm going to be dead. And you might say, why do I care about what happened in the past? Because I'm living currently. Why do, why do I even care? Because it's, it's important. It's important to understand that the kingdoms in the dream contrasted with the kingdom of God, and let's just say the kingdoms beyond the dream in our day and age. This will bear relevance to you in just a moment if it isn't now. Please stay with me. Dr. Ralph Wilson explains, when Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., the Medes and the Persians took over the territory of Babylonia, and they ruled over the largest empire so far known in the West during that time period. If you're reading in your Bibles and you say, what is the Cal- what, who are the Chaldees or the Chaldeans? Or if you're not sure how to pronounce it, you might call them Chaldeans because it looks like a CH at the beginning, all right? They are the Babylonians. If you're ever reading your Bible or a different version of the Bible, when it says Chaldees or Chaldeans, it's also the same as saying the Babylonians, okay? Those are interchangeable. When you read about the Medes or the Persians about this time period of Daniel in the 500s BC, it's in the Medo-Persian Empire. So the Medo-Persian Empire, why are they represented by silver? It's thought that they're represented by silver because the Medes made money a thing. I'm not saying the Babylonians didn't have coinage and those kind of things, but most of the Babylonians traded items and goods. But by the time you get to the Medes, there's, there's this thing called coins that start to come onto the scene. They use silver coins a lot in the Medo-Persian Empire as a, as a form of currency. Now, I'm not saying there was no currency prior to that, but the Medes really made this something as a part of their economy. And so they used silver coins as trade for goods. And so Daniel stated that Medo-Persia would be inferior to Babylon. It was not inferior in military strength, for it conquered Babylon, nor was it inferior in size, for Medo-Persia became the larger kingdom than Babylon, but it is inferior in one respect because it was a partnership kingdom. It lacked the absolute unity that Babylon enjoyed. Babylon was a sole dictatorship under one authority. By the time you get to the Medo-Persians, they become so large in territory, it's hard for one man to manage. It's not saying that he couldn't, but he had to have other authority figures, whereas Nebuchadnezzar was the sole authority figure who gave some of that authority to Daniel, who was under him. We start to get these things in the next kingdom called city-states that further fracture and make less effective in some regard the authority that Babylon once knew. So the Greek Empire, this is where scholars really get angry and will start fist fighting. Hi, buddy, I love you. This is where uh, people will get really weirded. I'm sorry, I I do love you. Um, This is where scholars actually get really mad at each other. Because here's where debates come into play. We can, scholars will say, all right, Babylon, we know, uh, Medo-Persians, all right, pretty good bet, but 
When it comes to the third and the fourth kingdoms represented, the bronze and the iron and the iron mixed with clay, some will say there were five kingdoms, but there weren't. Some will say that the third kingdom was actually Persia. The second kingdom was the Medes. Why? Again, some of you are going, again, seriously, stick with me. The Medo-Persians were one kingdom. You then get what most scholars, and there are some that are outliers that don't agree with this, that the third kingdom are the Greeks. And why would we say the third kingdom is the Greek empire? Daniel, when he continued his interpretation with the next element, what was it? Bronze. In 331 BC, the Medo-Persians fell to the Greeks headed by Alexander the Great. Now, the, the, Greek, the Greek empire had always been around, <laughs> like thousands of years, all right? It's been around for a long time. They used to be called Macedonia. When you read about Macedonia, that would be what you would consider the Greek empire of the day. But by, and they, it, there's a lot of different things that were going on. You could read about it, but Philip the Great, or Philip, who was one of the strongest kings of the Greek empire at the time, had a son by the name of Alexander. Philip would be assassinated, some think by Alexander, but most think it was somebody else. And so Alexander, as a young 20-something-year-old guy with a lot of chutzpah, rose to power, and he continued what his father had already started to do, which was to expand the empire. Well, the Medo-Persians by that time period in 331 had become weakened and less strong, and Alexander the Great, who had committed himself to military prowess, became strong and continued to amass armies after the death of his father, and he began to take over the known world of the day. It's in Alexander the Great's time period that the empire, which was the Medo-Persians, was taken over and expanded even greater, all the way to what we would call modern-day India, which would have been India back in those days too, but all the way out, not as far as the Ganges River, but pretty darn far, and all the way up into Macedonia or the Greek territories in Europe and down into Egypt. Have you ever heard of Alexandria in Egypt? It's named after him. <clears throat> he started that city. Wherever he went, it seemed like he was able to conquer. And he brought into play one of the greatest developments in, cultural revol in a cultural revolutionary way that the world had known up to that time because what he did when he expanded the kingdom, he expanded the kingdom's culture. And so people would follow him to India, like groups of citizens, because they knew wherever he went, he was going to take over. And I was, as I was reading, <clears throat> these citizens would follow in the wake of, of, of conquering these different cities in India, in Egypt, and, and all around Turkey, in the Middle East, and they would establish cities. And the remaining people that weren't destroyed by Alexander would be assumed or, or, or consumed by the Greek culture, what we would call Hellenization. Have you ever heard of the thing called Hellenization? When you, when you become Hellenized, it means you're going to speak the Greek language, you're going to read Greek and write Greek, 
You're going to adopt the Greek culture, the Greek philosophies of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. You're going to adopt everything we are. And so you see the expansion of the kingdom, not just through military might, but by taking over by enculturating other cultures. But Alexander the Great's rule wouldn't be very long. In a short amount of time, he would expand the kingdom from what his father had given over after his assassination. But one of the things we know about Alexander, he loved to drink. He loved to party. And there are skeptical uh, ideas about how he died. Some say he fell asleep drunk and kind of threw up while he was asleep and choked on his vomit and died. Okay, that was one theory. But something happened after a night of drunken revelry and partying with his cohorts, and he died in his sleep. Don't know why. There are no forensic, forensic scientists around to check out the body to see, suffice it to say, he died at a young age. What happened after Alexander died? The kingdom that had been following a man became weakened because the man was no longer existent. And you start to see some more city-states kind of pop up. And the Romans began to start to make some headway in these city-states. This is why oftentimes when the Romans start to come to power, it's called the Greco-Roman Empire. Do you know why it's called Greco for Greek? It's because they just took whatever the Greeks had already established and assumed it as theirs, and then by a sheer force and power and brute strength, because they, they were one of the strongest military. They, they, just as Alexander had perfected warfare, when the Romans came onto the scene, they took it to the next level. They have the double-edged swords. They have these these weapons that the world really hadn't known up to that time. They they started doing different things with military warfare and guerrilla warfare. And it's not fighting guerrillas, in case you're curious what guerrilla warfare is. I used to think it was that. Anyway, back on track. So they come onto, onto the scene, and they just pretty much take over from within. In the Roman Empire of that day, by the time it gets to its peak, it's about 117 A.D. that the Roman Empire is at its largest and most powerful. When did Jesus come onto the scene? Do you remember? Okay, if you just look at our Gregorian calendars, we date our calendars based on the birth of Christ. So we would say zero, but more than likely, because I got it wrong, it was about 3 B.C. or 4 B.C. that Jesus was born. The Romans get strong. They take over by brute force. At the greatest expanse of the Roman Empire, they go all the way up into England, Spain, Portugal, all the the Mediterranean coast of Africa, as far east as as China and and, and India there. China was pretty rough, so they get too far into that territory because of their emperors. It was the largest kingdom of the known world of the day. Do you know what the Romans were superb at? 
Whereas the Greeks were superb at spreading their culture and their language, what were the Romans good at? Not just warfare. They built roads. They built highway systems. They built aqueducts. They modernized different things of the day and age to get water into homes. They had running water. They had these, these amazing highways and chariots. And they, they, you, where do we get our, you know where our train system, where our rails are as wide as they are? It's, because, it's based on the Roman width of a chariot wheel, the chariot wheels. Do you know that? Some of you, many, I'm giving you useful, not useful, useless knowledge here. The Romans perfected transport, trade, and, and they, they made travel so much easier. And then something significant happens. As the empire is almost at its, at its greatest, God cuts from a mountain a rock. And what does he do with that, mount, with that rock cut from the mountain? See, they didn't realize it at the time because he came as a little baby in a small town called Bethlehem. But I'm telling you, it scared the crap out of one of the governors, the Roman governors. You remember? One of the Roman higher-ups. Because when the wise men from the east had come to worship this new king born in Bethlehem, they stopped by the palace of this Roman hierarchy. And they say, hey, can you tell us where this baby was born? We followed his star, and he's, I don't know, somewhere in this region, because this is kind of where it stops. Are you aware of this? And he's like, no, do tell. Do tell. And they're like, okay, we'll figure it out. And he's like, okay, when you do, come back by and let me know where he is, because I want to go worship him too. Okay? He was a paranoid king. He was a paranoid ruler. Well, the wise men... After they left, were warned. Don't go back that way. Don't tell them. Go a different way back home. So they go worship this newborn baby in a town called Bethlehem. And whenever King Herod realized they weren't coming back through, he devises a plan because he's worried. Shows you how weak the Roman Empire truly is. They're paranoid. They're worried. He sends a band of individuals to go execute any child from the age of two and younger. Not just any child, any male child in the region and area of where Babylon, the small town, is. And so there were deaths of small children, small boys in that town. Joseph and Mary were warned by an angel of the Lord, and so they hid out. They left, actually, and guess where they went to? Guess. Come on. Egypt. And so for a short stint of time in his early childhood years, Jesus spent some time in Egypt with his mom and dad before they returned back after it was safe when they 
when Herod had died, they went back and settled in Nazareth, which is where the jobs were. And Joseph was a carpenter. See, this stone didn't come in like a mighty force to tear apart things from the get-go like you would assume. But let's be honest. After the Romans rise and they become weakened from paranoia and just sheer stupidity, the Roman Empire would continue on after Jesus, but do you know what would happen? By 300 A.D., going into 400 A.D., there is an emperor that comes onto the scene in Rome. Do you remember his name? Starts with the C. Doesn't sound like constipation. Constantine, correct. Constantine the Great comes onto the scene, and guess what he does? He ends up institutionalizing and making the state religion Christianity. You know, the ones that the Romans had been persecuting for a few hundred years up to that point? So now Christianity goes from being the red-headed stepchild of the empire to being the head of the empire. And what happens after Jesus commissions his disciples? He says, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations. What's he tell them in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? Go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all over the world. How has God's kingdom expanded? God's kingdom is not a physical or present kingdom in the sense of looking for a, a, a city or a state. Sure, you can go to the Vatican. The Vatican and, and all of that is a small, a small country of its own. But that's not where God lives. God dwells in the presence of his people. What is the largest religion of the world now? And I hate to use the word religion, but what is the largest faith system the world has ever known up to this point? It's Christianity. A close second's the Muslim religion. It's gaining steam. But the reality is Christianity is the largest faith structure the world has ever known. What Daniel understood in the Old Testament through the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is what would happen in the future. And what happened in the future actually came to pass. Daniel couldn't have known this. Daniel lived through a couple empires and four major uh, emperors. But he couldn't have seen, he, he wouldn't have known anything about the Greek empire. He knew about Cyrus and Darius in the Medo-Persians, but he never knew about the Greek empire. He would have never been able to know anything about the Roman empire. And he, 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 he could know the God he's talking about because it was the God he worshiped, but how would he know what that rock cut from the mountain meant? As Jesus is standing before one of the most powerful figures in Judea of his day and age after being arrested, he's standing before Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate is looking at him, this, this man who doesn't seem like a threat. Praise the Lord, I hear that, amen. He's looking at him and he's questioning him, who are you? Why have they arrested you? Why are you here in my presence? This is something I shouldn't even have to be dealing with. But you seem to be a problem, so tell me why you're the problem. 
And Jesus, for the most part, is remaining silent as he's standing before this authority figure of the Roman government. Now, I hear you're a king. Tell me about your kingdom. He says, oh, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, my followers would have risen up to protect me and to try to overthrow you. I didn't say try. Would have overthrown you. But my kingdom's not of this world. Okay. And then he starts talking about truth. And frustrated because Pilate heard, has heard probably every argument by every group of people known to man at that time. He's like, really, what is truth? Whose God is true? What God is real? Who, Caesar is Lord. Yeah, we have the, tell me truth. Oh, please enlighten me, oh enlightened one. And then he walks away. See, Jesus' kingdom wasn't a kingdom that would take over by brute force, but by love, by mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Because the weapons of the church and of Christ are not the weapons of world warfare. See, Paul and the other early New Testament leaders knew this. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. Jesus taught us the ways of nonviolence. Jesus taught us so much on how to gain a hearing and to perpetuate and to continue to show the truth of the gospel. This rock cut from the mountain that smashed the statue and basically ground it into small powder, which was blown away with the wind, grew into a mighty mountain that encompassed the whole earth. Christianity today is a global religion. It is a religion of peace, even though some go and do it in the wrong way. And our king, our prince, is a prince of peace. According to Dr. Mitchell Chase, let me kind of close with some of this. Jesus didn't shy away from fulfilling Daniel's prophecy. Did you know Jesus referred to this dream in Daniel's prophecy? Jesus identified himself as the stone from Daniel's interpretation in a parable about wicked tenants. In Luke chapter 20, verse 17, he cited Psalm 118.22, which says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In Isaiah 8.14, Isaiah 28.16. And then he said this. Listen to this. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Luke 20, verse 18. He's alluding to Daniel 2, 34 and 35 and 44 through 45. Having completed the interpretation, Daniel reminded Nebuchadnezzar, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And because the God of heaven made known all of this, the dream is certain and the interpretation was true. And not in Daniel's lifetime or in Nebuchadnezzar's, but the world would come to know the rock cut from the mountain, not by human hands, would be God himself 
coming in the form of a man through the Virgin Mary. He would establish a kingdom. He would call for us to pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is why today our allegiance isn't to an earthly kingdom as believers in Christ. What is our allegiance or who is our allegiance to? See, this is very important, especially in a very politically tense time. Because I see during election time, and I'm not saying that, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, who, who aligns most with biblical principles and precepts. That's what I always tell. I've had people get mad at me and leave the church because I wouldn't tell the congregation who to vote for. All right, leave. I, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not here championing a president. I'm here championing the God of heaven and earth whose kingdom never fades. Yes, politics are important, but they are temporary. How you vote is important, but it is temporary compared to the kingdom, you, which is your primary kingdom. And it's not your home that you walk into the doors of. It's not this church building. It is the body of Christ, the citizenry of heaven. This is why Jesus spoke so much on this topic. It's about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. Most of his parables are pointing to the kingdom of God, not about salvation, but the kingdom of God. Why? Because he wants every one of us to be a part of that kingdom, to be citizens of that kingdom, and the entry fee is salvation. And you know the, the entry fee was paid for by him? The sacrifice that was intended for us, he took and he gave us a free ticket into Disney World. Okay, not Disney World, the kingdom. It's a get out of jail free card. Thank you. And yes, we live in the greatest nation, I believe known to mankind, but our citizenry, citizenry that's more important it's heaven. Because even if the nation continues, the United States continues beyond your death, it will end someday. God is the one who causes nations to rise and fall, but there is one kingdom that will remain forever. Am I, I'm probably beating this thing like a dead horse. But it's all about not only perspective, but about being in the mind, right mindset. Because the kingdoms of this world and their philosophers and their prophets and their leaders are very strong and convincing at times. And sometimes they do get it right, but many times they get it wrong. How much better is it to be in the presence of a leader who is perfect and right all the time and whose kingdom is good and of peace? And it starts now. It doesn't start when you die. It starts now. As our worship team comes forward, let me close with this. How many of you have heard of the guy by the name of Napoleon? Napoleon Bonaparte? French revolutionary or French uh, emperor? 
Do you know at the Battle of Waterloo when he lost, he was taken into exile and placed on the island of St. Helena to live out the rest of his days? It is said, and this cannot be completely verified, but I've read this from several sources, it is said that he uttered these words to some friends of his before he died. Alexander, Caesar, Hannibal conquered the world, but they had no friends. Not really. Jesus founded his empire upon the love, uh, uh, empire upon love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. In the 1700s, he's saying this. Jesus founded his empire, his kingdom, on love, and at this hour, millions would die for him. He has won the hearts of men, a task no conqueror can do. What kingdom are you a part of? What kingdom is the most important to you? Maybe you don't have control over the kingdoms of the world in which you live, but the one kingdom you have control over is the one behind the four walls of your house. But if that kingdom isn't surrendered to the most high God and his kingdom, that kingdom will not last either. I see so many peoples, so many families falling apart because they focused on the wrong things. They focused on their internal kingdom and their small little kingdoms instead of surrendering everything to God and allowing his kingdom to supplant the kingdoms they build for themselves. So what kingdom are you a part of? What kingdom are you a citizen of? What is the most important kingdom in your life? Mark Laberton, in his book entitled Called, writes, when I was considering the possibility of embracing, embracing the Christian faith as a young college student, what I feared the most was that it would make my life smaller, less love, less joy, less creativity, less wonder, left, less engagement. I had met enough Christians. This is a damning statement. He said, I had met enough Christians who were incarnational proof of this smallness mentality. So when I finally came to faith in Christ as a college student, it, it was because I discovered that Jesus saves people from the very smallness that I had feared. I saw that the very essence of the kingdom of God is a life bigger than I would ever find outside of it. What kingdom are you a part of? Are you in the Democrat kingdom, the Republican kingdom? Oh, no, 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 I'm an independent. Are you a part of the kingdom of God that has no labels? Because it's all about him and never about us. Which kingdom are you a part of? God desires for you to be a part of his kingdom. He has made everything possible for you to be a part of his kingdom. You don't have to jump through hoops. You just have to come as you are. Because his kingdom will never end. I'm going to call some prayer warriors forward this morning uh, to pray with you. Um, 
And last week we did something pretty significant. I thought we had, uh, we had a time of people coming forward and, and we had some people down here to meet with you. As I always say, if you want to pray alone, come to my left, you're right. But there are going to be a couple people standing over here that are going to pray with you if you want to be prayed with. You can come and stand in front of them and pray with them. You can kneel at the altar. But uh, don't leave today. If the Lord has convicted you, the power of the Holy Spirit has moved you, be obedient to come and to pray. Um, I'll say Christy, Mr. Pittman. You, you know I'm looking at you. Yeah, come on, it'll be fun. You'll, you'll enjoy it. And I need one more lady. Who would come and pray? Who? Amy Reardon? Oh, you're getting called from the... Re oh, she's like, I don't want to. These men and women will pray with you. Let me pray over you right now. Heavenly Father, thank you that you give us a way out of the kingdoms of this world and into your holy kingdom through your son, Jesus Christ, who made a way for us because he's the way, truth, and the life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that our citizenry is not temporary in that kingdom, but permanent. And remind us that the most important passport we have is salvation through Christ Jesus who gives us entry into your kingdom. Forgive us where we falter and fail. Give us the benefits of the citizenry of your kingdom, which is freedom from sin and death. And show us that that freedom that we gain gives us such an amazing, not only perspective, but life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.